Welcome to the More Beach Meetings podcast, where we explore the evolving nature of remote-first and hybrid work. I'm your host, David Mastronardi. The More Beach Meetings podcast is brought to you by GameStorming Group Team Expeditions. Get your team aligned, connected, and collaborating for this new era of work. Visit gamestorming.group slash teams to learn how an expedition can boost your team's creativity and productivity quotient. Get your team working like it's the 21st century. In today's episode of More Beach Meetings, we speak with Chase Warrington, head of remote at Duist. He shares with us the complexities of this multifaceted and increasingly popular job. We discuss his refreshing and counterintuitive approach to planning international offsites, and we learn what he believes will be the most important job skill, especially in the world of asynchronous work for the next five years. Here's my chat with Chase, recorded Thursday, June 9th, 2022. I was in Brooklyn and Chase was many time zones away. You've been at Duist now for six years? Yeah, that's correct. You've changed roles recently. I want to go back. This is a big milestone for a lot of people. Back to March 16th, 2020. So you weren't in the role that you're currently in now, which is the head of remote. And I don't know if that role existed at that time, but I was wondering if you could take us back to around that date, wherever it was for you, and just talk about what happened Duist, what happened with you, how did this role come about, how did you transition into it, and why did you decide to move from what you were doing, which was sales-oriented, into running remote for Duist? At Duist, we had business development. I started the business development department five years ago. Previously, we didn't have a business development department, and we weren't really sure what it was going to be at Duist. It's very natural to correlate biz dev with sales. But at Duist, it wasn't. We don't touch our customers very much except in sort of a support retroactive sort of way. So what we defined biz dev at as Duist was anything that didn't really fit squarely into another department. We had all these projects, this list of projects that we wanted to tackle, but we could just never prioritize because we didn't have somebody to own them. But we defined biz dev as that. We had some partnership things. We had some co-marketing activities. We had some revenue generating projects, like for instance, building a referral program or building an affiliate program, ambassador program, things like this that we wanted to do and somebody needed to own those. But one of the other projects that we were really interested in was becoming a central figure in the remote work scene. We were already a remote first team. We were writing about it. We were talking about it some. And it was starting to pick up some steam as a conversation. We weren't really being proactive about getting out there and being a part of those conferences, being a part of those discussions, leading the way. We felt like we had a lot to offer and we were big on building in public. So as a remote first team building tools for remote teams, we said, well, we should be a central part of this conversation. So that didn't fit squarely anywhere in particular. And that was something I really wanted to take on in biz dev. And so we did. So that's kind of how that transition started. Wasn't premeditated, but over time, when March 2020 hit, and all of a sudden, the whole world went remote, we went from getting a handful of interview requests and blog post requests and appearance requests to just getting inundated with them. And then we also got found the game had changed a lot. All of a sudden, everybody was remote. There were a ton of products, there were a ton of services that could be useful to us, not to mention all the best practices being shared by all the new remote teams out there. We said we really want someone to make sure we're staying on the cutting edge of what remote is because it's so core to our DNA. So I think that was leadership's desire. There was, you know, let's have somebody in this position to really lead remote because the game's changing. We want to stay ahead of the curve and we need someone to keep us in the limelight of this remote conversation. So this is actually not two separated 
from what you were doing in a business development role. Correct. I would say it was like a, a side project within BizDev. Let's say we had at any given time five projects going on. It was one of those five and it was just the one that I was most passionate about the whole time, but didn't really see it as a full-time job. And then people like Darren Murph from GitLab and others started leading the way with this role called head of remote or remote lead or whatever it was called at different organizations. And we took notice saying, we think we're pretty good at remote. We've been doing this for 15 years. We're a very asynchronous team where we've got 100 people in 35 countries. If we're going to stay really good at this, then yeah, let's have somebody kind of lead that charge for us. There seem to be different flavors of what this is, not just from a job title standpoint, whether it's head of remote, chief remote officer. And you mentioned Darren Murph, who you were on a panel with, which is where we met for the first time. Yeah. Can you talk about some of the differences between versions of this job as you've seen them at different companies? Yeah. One thing that I will just preface this, the answer a little bit is like one thing that I really love about the way we approach work at Duist is that we go into it with a very open mind and sort of a blank slate. So that was the case when I took over BizDev, when I started BizDev. We don't really know what this is going to look like, but we think we could use this and let's build the airplane as we're flying it. That's worked well for us. And so the same was true with this. There was a job description posted and people applied and I interviewed, got the job and then I go, okay, now what do we do? <laughs> and, you know, there was a lot of things to figure out. So we started looking outwards. I talked to a bunch of the other people that are in similar roles, Darren being one of them and many others who just kind of got a little bit of feedback from each of them about what their core focus was, how they measured success, why their position existed. And that's how we started the panel at Running Remote in Montreal a couple weeks ago is how do you guys define your job role? What is the purpose of your role in your company? And all four of us had very different answers. So that's the consistent thing. That's the red thread that ties all these things together is no real hardcore red thread, actually. There's not a strong consistency from what one does to the next. I'm split basically 50-50 between internal operations and external marketing, evangelism, thought leadership kind of stuff, whereas others are very focused on just people ops type things or the transition from a remote team, I'm sorry, a co-located team to a remote team or implementing all new practices. Whereas in my case, I'm not really implementing a lot of new practices. We were already doing a lot of the things we're still doing today. So for me, I'm more tweaking and pulling some little levers internally, whereas some are pulling really big levers and turning things upside down completely. It does really depend a lot on the vantage point of the organization, I think where they are and where they want to get to, and then figuring out where this person can fill in the gaps. That's one of the fascinating things for me is that everyone I talk to has a pretty different description of what their day-to-day -day looks like. You touched on that dividing line where it seems like there is a, we want to be known for, we want to develop a reputation outwardly for being a remote first or a remote only organization and take advantage of this workforce trend. And then it seems like the, the other piece is more operational inward, whether it is bringing some structure to the chaos that remote or a transition to remote can be, or even being an internal advocate to have more of that. It's one thing if the decision is made to be remote, and then we say, all right, we now need to figure out how to operationalize being remote. And I imagine this is happening in larger companies. We're seeing this in the finance sector, and we want you in the office. There seems to be a battle that there needs to be an advocate for remote work. What happens in your walk us through a day and maybe balance out what some of these marketing activities look like and what some of these operationalization inward focused activities look like? 
I can nerd out on this because I truly love what I'm doing every day. It's a lot of fun. I have to protect myself from overworking because I kind of gladly will right now, which is a recipe for disaster in the long run. I think I can gladly kind of walk you through some of the things that I'm working on. Interestingly, one of the core areas of my work right now is highly focused on our co-located event strategy. We take the position that remote first doesn't mean remote only. It's really important for highly functioning remote teams to have a really good in real life IRL strategy. One of the first projects that I took on, keep in mind, like following COVID, basically three years of not seeing each other. We've hired a lot of people who have never met a teammate. And frankly, we were doing retreats and offsites for seven, eight years, but not really doing them at like a super high level necessarily. We didn't have a hardcore strategy. We didn't have documentation. We were just sort of doing them. They were great. It was a lot of fun. We got some things done. Again, like thinking, how can we take this to the next level? I personally think the offsite, the retreat is going to be one of those things that really differentiates really good remote teams from just remote teams. I think doing them really well, having them structured, having the right balance between work and play and professional growth and personal connection. All of these things are vital. So we decided, I mean, I'm fortunate I work for a company that believes that as well. That was one of my first major projects was like, how do we bring people back together again? What does that look like? What does the documentation look like? What are the travel policies and procedures? Where are we going? What tools do we use to do all this? Like I said before, like there are tools that exist now just to support retreats, not just planning them, but also all the tools out there to coordinate logistics and calculate costs and book flights. And this is all stuff that didn't exist a couple years ago. And now it's like, this is how we can really optimize these things. So I spend currently a lot of my time on our co-located event strategy. We ran 10 offsites during Q1. We were planning our company retreat in the final stages of that, depending on when this airs, we might be at it when this airs. That's a good teaser. I do want to go deeper into that after, but talk about some of the other activities that you've got going on. What does a job rec for a head of remote look like? Those are often different things, what the job says and what you actually do. That changes a little by little. Um, I do spend a good bit of time on some of the things I was just talking about. I'm also looking outward at a lot of the tools and best practices that other teams are using. So I'm networking, talking with people who are in similar positions or at other companies and learning what are the things they're doing that we could be doing. And I'm, you know, you can learn a ton from what other highly functioning remote teams are doing. So taking those meetings, listening to new product pitches, distilling all that information and sharing it with the team. Sometimes we're demoing new tools and stuff now that might work really well on one team, but not on another. Some might be concepts that could work across the organization. The silver lining thread, not the silver lining, that connects all those things is that they all up-level our remote game. I'm constantly looking for something that can take us to the next level. And the tricky thing there is, is again, like we're already doing doing this for 15 years. So we have a culture that's pretty well established. I'm not looking to make massive changes. I'm looking to infuse a little bit of new life, maybe challenge some ideas that we've had that have been longstanding practices that are internally have worked well. But now we can say, hey, this might work a little bit better. A great example of this, just to give you one, we're trying to infuse a little bit more. We're very asynchronous as a company. We use Twist, which is our tool that we built as a Slack alternative because we felt Slack was too synchronous for the way that we wanted to operate as a full distributed team. So we built Twist. It's hyper asynchronous in nature and we're a, a very async team. Doesn't mean that we only need to communicate in Twist, which has been our nature in the past. So we're looking at things. We're using Loom more now, for instance, for more asynchronous video. We're setting up very compartmentalized periods for synchronous connection on a more personal level, something we were kind of not against, but not really embracing fully in the past. So building connections with our teammates, seeing that there is a space for that human connection in a virtual world, as well as the co-located world. 
world when we come together for retreats. And so building out a strategy around this. These are some of the things that I'm working on from like an internal aspect. But then external is a lot of marketing interviews. I write for Forbes on remote work and um, a couple other publications and uh, try to share what we're doing internally and building in public kind of thing. The whole idea behind that is just keep the remote revolution concept rolling forward is whatever little way that we can. We just want to help support that movement. Is your personal brand, you have a podcast on a related topic. Is that supported? You're not doing the cracks in the shadows. I would be screwed by now if that was the case. One thing we support a lot, we one of our core values at Doist is mastery, really mastering your craft. And that can come in the form of a lot of different things. And one of those things is we embrace people doing side projects. I remember when I first joined Doist, like literally my first week, having come from a more like corporate environment, typical traditional environment, somebody shared, hey, I launched my side project over the weekend. It's an app that does this. And I remember thinking like, you can't share that with everybody. They're going to hear you. You're announcing it to the whole company. You're going to get fired, man. We fully embrace that. I mean, the truth is, is my... um. Yeah, my podcast is my own side project. I work on it on my weekends or evenings or whatever. It takes nothing away from Doist. And if anything, maybe adds a tiny little bit. It's got a little audience compared to what Doist has, but we fully embrace that as a company. There's another dividing line there. It seems like certain companies, certain industries of a certain age. Something kind of related to that, I should say, is like I distinctly went into my podcast. It's called About Abroad. And it's more about being an expat, living a life outside of your, we say, life without borders. So it wasn't set up to be a remote work podcast, but remote work supports a lot of the the lifestyles that I'm talking to people who are living. I'm an expat living in Japan and I work remotely for a company back in San Francisco. So there's a connector there, but we're mainly focused on what's life like in Japan. How'd you get there? What's the visa process? How can you stay? And how would you recommend others follow in your footsteps? Looking at tools that are less synchronous. I think Slack might be a good example because I think it has some mainstream adoption. And I'm sure some people are probably wondering, what do you mean? This asynchronous seems to be a companion topic to remote work. Using Slack as an example, what makes Slack more synchronous than asynchronous? And then is it a culture thing or is it a tech thing when you come in and you create something like Twist? You can't respond to a message unless it's like, two hours old or something? What's going on there? Or do you try to address it more from a culture standpoint? Totally. It's a culture thing first, like way far out. Number one there, it's a culture thing. You could make almost any tool synchronous by default if you really wanted to. You could make instant messaging async with the right rules and guidelines around it. It's just that certain tools are going to lend themselves better to a particular ideology than others. It just makes sense. Instant messaging and email could pretty much be used the same way, but you probably understand that instant messaging is going to happen faster than email. But theoretically, if you and I wanted to, we could just fire emails back and forth at each other. It really wouldn't be that different. 20 years ago, that's what happened. Yeah, exactly. So the same is true here. For me, I still have to work in Slack. And I'm not just saying have to because I work for a competing product. For me, it is like a grind. I get back into it. I go, okay, you know, this just is so chaotic to me. And I talk to people all the time who on one hand say, I love Slack. I work in it every day. It's awesome. But then at the same time, they sort of complain about it. Oh my God, I can't get out. There's no notifications are crazy. I'm losing files everywhere. I woke up this morning and had like 70 pings on Slack and I don't even know where to start. That was the pain we were feeling when we built Twist was just we had teammates spread across every single time zone. We're not even that big of a team. You know, I think at the time we were about 50 and it was just still too chaotic for us. We just thought I can't wake up every morning and just have all these little red dots and bells and whistles flashing at me. I need something that's a little bit calmer, a little more thread based. And at the time, Slack didn't have threads either. But even still, like we built Twist with the thread 
had in mind. We built a lot of things by leaving them out. So it's almost as much as like what's not in there is what is. For example, like there's no presence indicator. There's no read receipt. I don't know if somebody's seen what I've sent them or not. It's very easy to like remove people from. So when I'm notifying, I can quickly remove teams or individuals or add people back in. So I'm only notifying who really needs to be known, not like an entire channel and just being very deliberate about those things. And it lends itself to that. It makes it very simple. So that's what we mean by from a product standpoint, totally starts with culture. The company has to enforce it. And I know some really amazing teams that are highly functioning, totally distributed on Slack, and it works wonderfully for them because they've been very deliberate about the culture that they've built. That's the key. That helps a lot. For you, it sounds like Slack became what email is for a lot of people, right? I work out of my inbox. You want to tone it down, the amount of attention that you give it from an urgency standpoint. Right. And also, we want to really reinforce the mindset that slacking or being present, you know, just typing isn't working, like just being there, being available. We found one of the big problems for us was people felt that they needed to be connected to at the time, it was Slack. We built the company running on Slack. But people felt, you know, they were going to bed at 11 p.m. in Japan and they said, oh, I got to check real quick and filter out some of these real, because otherwise I'm going to wake up in the morning and this whole conversation will have continued and I'll be lost in it by then. And so we wanted to try and remove some of that. We wanted people to get back to deep work and just think of like coming into Twist as like, okay, I got to go do that for one hour, but then I'm going to go back to real work. We kind of feel that like the real work is taking place externally of the chat apps. And maybe this person going to bed late at night, wanting to stay connected. Maybe there's also a connection element. Yeah. Let's move into your offsite. 10 offsites in Q1. I'm sure it's not everybody at all 10 because then essentially you wouldn't be a remote company. But is part of the reason or do you find that these offsites have this maybe muting effect in these tech channels where, oh, I know I'm going to see my team at least if once this quarter and get on the same page, does that lessen the urgency that you feel as a remote employee off on your own using channels? Is that a reason for your in-person strategy? No, actually, it's kind of distinct because I'll explain why. I totally see what you mean there. So one thing we wanted to be, this was something we were very intentional about when we started crafting our remote work co-located strategy. So we're a remote first team, we're an async team, but we're going to have in real life strategy and what does that look like? And one of the things we decided is we didn't want those offsites for internal terminology, we call them. We have a company retreat, which is everybody together in one place. And then we have mini retreats, which are the individual teams or more like little individual team offsites. We didn't want those mini retreats or those retreats to become the point that we needed to get to to get things done. So we didn't want to be in February saying, oh, we've got an offsite coming up in March. Let's put that off until we get together. Very intentionally, we said, no, we're not going to do that because that will slow us down in reality. Let's make sure we stay a hyper productive async first team that gets things done while we're working async the way we do 50 weeks out of the year. But those other two weeks when we come together every six months, when we get together in the same place, let's revert the focus to the thing that we're really struggling to do as a distributed team. And that's the human connection piece. So that's the primary focal point of our offsites. We don't expect to get a lot done in terms of work. We do get some things done. It's not that we're we're just out there doing happy hours and boat rides. There's some work that gets done, but we don't use those as the milestones that we need to get to in order to get something done. Less gets done in that week than gets done in a normal week. I'll put it that way. Well, that makes sense. You're getting your social emotional stuff. Yeah. Needs met in the functional stuff. You've deliberately said, 
no here because then it could turn into something that when you're back remote, it's like, oh, we'll just wait for October. Yeah. We don't want that. Let's just wait to ever be said. Like we don't want to say, well, let's wait until we get together to do that. In fact, I will be 100% honest. And uh, this is a little bit controversial. I've I, like had some conversations with people out there in the Twitter spheres of the world where we just disagree. And that's totally cool. I don't think those sessions are very useful. A remote team that's really good at doing remote work and trying to get together and pull something off. We work really well async for a lot of reasons. Like async promotes transparency. It promotes like giving people a lot of time to think about their ideas. It's not the first thought that comes to mind. It's the best thought that takes place over a period of time. So in real life, workshops and things like this can be awesome. And I get that like cool brainstorming can come and aha moments. In our case, we actually have just, we struggle to really feel that we're getting a lot out of those sessions. It's not that we're getting nothing out of them, but when we're together in the same place and we do, let's say, a two-hour brainstorming session, we actually walk away going, that's cool. We, yeah, we got something from that. But we do that same sort of thing asynchronously and we get the same results or perhaps even better results. So is it worth it to take this super precious time that we have? We get four or five days together every six months. Is that what we should be using this time for? And like our conclusion is we should try and we should get better at this because there is value there. But at the same time, it's not overwhelmingly obvious that that brainstorming session or that workshop in real life was much better than one that we could have run virtually or asynchronously. So it's different for every team. I find it fascinating. It's not like there's a right or wrong here. I think it's just different strategies. And that's what's been interesting about our strategy, I think. Yeah. So the counter argument when you in these heated Twitter debates, well, yeah, you need to be together. Is it creativity? Yeah. Totally. I think that's valid. You know, it can definitely be valid. I mean, there's something to be said for when you get five people in a room and you say, man, let's just figure this out. Let's talk through it. That has value for sure. It's just that you can do things asynchronously that also provide value that you lose in real life situation. So there is a trade-off that has to be measured. You can't just focus on the positives. And you've got a different set of priorities as you're looking at like, hey, yeah, it's these four or five days. What do we do well together? What do we do well apart? And let's optimize our time in either situation for those strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, exactly. So we made a little formula out of this. And so it's this like 20, 30, 50 approach. 20% of our offsites are work. 30% is like coordinated planned activity. In that case, we're talking about, let's say, a two-hour brainstorming session, three hours of some activity, some fun, you know, going out on a boat ride, then the rest of the time being like free and leisure time for rest, relaxation, recovery, but also mainly what you hope and what we find is that's where you get a lot of organic conversation that takes place. People really connect on a true human level. Some really awesome ideas are sparked during that free time, just going and having a coffee with a coworker and what's coming from that in this, we're not forced into this box of one hour in a conference room, but you're sitting there chatting and, hey, why don't we try this? What do, Have you guys thought about this? That's where the magic happens, honestly. For, I mean, that's been our experience. So that 20, 30, 50 formula is something we kind of try to stick to. Let's revisit this. You're planning this big offsite. I was catching up with Claire from Moo the other day. So what should I ask Chase? And she said, you know, he's working on this offsite. And I think she probably representative of a lot of people who are wanting to do more remote wants to know, how do I do this? What are things like your 20, 30, 50 rule? What are some best practices? What should our goals be? Then operationally, what are some of the speed bumps you've hit on the way that maybe people wouldn't know unless they've done this before? 
I'm so fascinated by the different approaches to planning these offsites. And I love talking with people around the world that are doing this now and just picking their brains as well. So I'll be happy to share what I've learned and my thoughts. And um, I'm sure there's counter arguments. The thing is, I can absorb those all day. I would love to hear what people think about this as well. My approach is very much so to focus on this is something I've had to learn and keep learning is not over engineering. My tendency, natural tendency is to you want to fill free time, you want to fill that calendar up with as many things as possible. But going back to what I was talking about earlier, if you really try to tie a metric to it, and if you suggest that 50% should be just relaxed, free time, optional activities, but not forced, this can be you know something to help you. So avoid the trap of over-engineering and trying to fill every moment with something. Understand that things are going to take longer than you expect them to. If you put down that it's going to take an hour and a half for lunch, it's probably going to take two to two and a half hours, actually. If you think it's going to take 15 minutes to walk from this site to the back to the co-working, it's probably going to take you like 30 or 45 minutes because something's going to happen. So building in a lot of flexibility and giving people options, that is really key is we make everything optional by default. Going back to the real world, like our day-to-day work, we don't force people to join meetings if it doesn't work for them. Just for whatever reason, really no questions asked. Hey, we've got a meeting at this time. Sorry, I can't be there. I've got to take my cat to the vet or I sleep at that time. I do siesta. Just we don't force you to show up to those things. So we're certainly not going to force you to show up to an offsite. And when you're at those offsites, if you've chosen to come, we're not going to force you to show up to very much. We might provide options. For instance, I've got every single day at our offsites, I've got three activities people can choose from. The fourth activity being do nothing, which is totally acceptable, but three different activities that kind of cater to three different types of people, like something kind of cerebral or cultural, something very physical, like hiking, for instance, something more uh, relaxing, like maybe going to a spa or something like that. So trying to infuse different options for different types of people and also encourage people to remember that there's no FOMO here. You can sit down and relax and just not participate in an activity. That will be perfectly fine. That's a good option for today if you feel you need that. If there's a long dinner plan tonight and you don't want to go, don't go. Just stay back, get order food into your room and hang out, recharge the batteries, show up tomorrow as the best version of yourself. So these are some of the things that we're trying to infuse into our strategy. How do you pick a place? How do you pick where to go? Does the geography or the location of where your team, your company is located factor into that? It does. So we basically, the year before I get a budget from finance, which may or may not be a bit negotiated back and forth, there's some tussle that goes there, but you get your final budget. And so you kind of know what you've got to work with. And then I start running some cost projections, taking the locations of different people into account, look at a handful of different places. We're trying to switch it up. We've been to major cities before like Athens, Greece, and we've been to the south of Chile and like mountain volcano country. We've been to uh, places like Menorca, kind of on an island. And so we're looking at different regions. Next year, we're going to Singapore. We were supposed to go in 2020. So we were going to go to Asia for the first time. When I started looking at locations this year, I said, okay, you know, we've recently been to a big city. We're going to another big city next year. We're going to Asia next year. The nucleus of the company, most people are, we've got a majority in Europe. So it's cheap for me to fly people within Europe. Looking at those factors, I can start doing some plug and play. I usually, I ran projections on like seven different locations around the world, excluded Asia because we were getting ready to go to Asia, excluded some major cities that were similar to places we had been before and just started narrowing it down from there and settled on a small village in the Alps. That sounds uh, quaint and amazing. We literally rented the village. We jokingly called it Duisburg because it's going to be our little village for a week. When it comes to then, and I don't know if Duisburg will have a person 
person for this or a partner. Do you work with somebody locally when you decide on a location to help coordinate? Or is that something that you dive into and try to do everything internally? Let me add one thing to the last question because it would be totally remiss to avoid this. These days, you have to be concerned with COVID and visas are always a thing. So logistically, I also ran projections on what the COVID scenario would likely look like. Of course, you can't really predict that, but there are some things you could look at, like which countries were more open than others, which ones were going to likely have vaccines rolled out, except we have people in countries around the world that aren't getting the mainstream vaccines. So we needed countries that were accepting of vaccines coming from places like Russia or China or other parts of the world. So that was a big factor as well. And looking at countries that were most likely going to be open, offer us destinations airports that could be used if one border, if one country shut down, but the other country was available for incoming flights, we could pivot. That was another thing that I think is important to mention is an unfortunate reality we still have to deal with. There's always going to be something, it seems, that factors in beyond just, oh, it would be really cool, or we haven't been at this destination. There's other factors to consider. So before going back to more like of the activity planning and having a partner in country or in city or in bird, how much do you take on from a an operational standpoint, are you shipping out COVID tests? Are you helping people with individual visas or what level of support are you providing? And then it's up to them to get everything sorted. One thing we decided was at first we said, we're going to find a place that will allow 100% of our team to show up if they want to. That literally proved to be impossible. I tried for months. There was not a place, at least at the time, you know, we're talking end of 2021, end of last year, we're going, okay, this is actually not possible. So we lowered that metric to, we wanted to find a place that 90% of people could attend based on their visa status and COVID status. Status. So that was the benchmark. Then what we do is on the individual to we provide them with all the information, you know, here's the COVID restrictions, here's the general visa restrictions. Really, it's hard for me to know the visa restrictions of a Filipino coming into Europe better than the Filipino that's there, right? So what we do is a from a support standpoint, as I say, I'm here to support you in this process. It's you got to look into it, whatever you need, you let me know if we need to hire an immigration lawyer, we will we'll deduct that from the budget. We want to get you there and we'll do everything we can, but it's on you to lead that charge. And so I'll have certain requests for they need a letter. Hey, you need to talk to the consulate. We need something on a company letterhead that says what's happening and why this person's coming. And so I've been working with people around the world on getting their various visa documentation together and usually comes together pretty nicely. I mean, we've had a couple hiccups here and there, but I'm really happy to say every single person that wants to come to our retreat is going to be able to make it if they didn't have some sort of personal matter like a pregnancy or a wedding or something like that. So that's pretty exciting. What do you do? And I guess there's some things that are maybe optional, like a wedding. I could choose between these two things. There's other things that are maybe structural, visa status, certain countries don't allow others. You said 90% is the target, but it sounds like you're never going to hit above that. What do you do if somebody is thinking about having this offsite, not everybody's going to make it. So I think one of the lessons there is, okay, well, set a high threshold, but also understand some people aren't going to be able to make it. So you don't have to find the perfect, the 100% date in the 100% place. But what do you do or what do you think about for those folks who aren't able to make it? How do you take care of what you're taking care of with everybody else who's there? 
This is something I wanted to address. We're very big on inclusivity, and I think it's super important on distributed teams, especially because you don't get a chance to feel very inclusive very often, right? You're not in the same place. You're not going to each other's birthday parties and hanging, kids aren't hanging out together. So you have to intentionally create this inclusivity. So one of the things that we, when I started looking at our strategy was how do we help those people? How do we support those people and make them feel included, even if they're not physically going to be there? And so what we did is we created a perk that says, if you can't can't go on the company retreat or a mini retreat because of something out of your control. So that excludes like you choose to go to a wedding or your wife is pregnant and you you know, you don't feel comfortable traveling during that time or anything like that. But if you can't go because COVID restriction, because of a visa blockage, something like that, then we will divert the funds that we were going to spend on you for the retreat to fund a personal trip to go visit another duister sometime in the next six months. So then that person works with me. They say, okay, I can't go, but hey, I live in Vancouver and I want to go visit my teammate in Mexico City. So we've got a couple thousand bucks there to spend and plan a little trip for them, buy their tickets, get them a hotel, pay for their food while they're there. That is one thing we're experimenting or we're hoping to, I hope we'll experiment with doing like a kind of like a backup retreat. Like, okay, these 10 people weren't able to go. Let's coordinate a a trip for them where they can all get together and maybe we'll rent a small co-living or something for them for a week or something like that. We can keep iterating on this for sure. One of the most common references people make about the internet disrupting businesses was always the travel agency. It's like, oh, we don't need a travel agency anymore. The travel agency has been moved now because it sounds like this is part of your role essentially is doing a lot of this from the selection to the operations to getting to getting people there how do you plan do you partner when you select these cities is this something maybe you have experience in the place before and you know some things or it's completely foreign to you do you partner do you look for local guides things like that a little bit of both. I mentioned before, like this is something I would just do for free if I could just work for free. I mean, I just genuinely love it. It's kind of what I did in my free time. I'm a sort of a world traveler and um, I've had friends and family and previous jobs and roles and things where it just was like, we need to coordinate a trip. Somebody needs to map it out. And I'm always happy to do that. So I don't mind doing the research. I like mapping out the logistics. It's just kind of like putting a puzzle together for me that I get it's a lot of fun for some people and sounds miserable for others. My wife is one of those where says, please don't make me do that. I lean into that and I enjoy doing a lot of creating on my own, but there's nothing like having some boots on the ground or some other phrase, you know, having somebody there that really knows the local scene, especially I think when you get out of the major cities, the major cities, I think there's enough content out there. It's pretty obvious in a lot of cases, but when you get into to like what we're doing here in this case, you know, going to a small village or going to a place that, you know, like an island destination where there's not just lists of museums and five-star restaurants and skyscrapers to go climb to the top of and amusement parks and things like that. You got to kind of create your own fun and activities and know where you can hold your work sessions. And those things are less obvious. So I look for someone local that can give me some pointers and has some connections. The most important thing you've learned in these last nine months in this role? We've talked a lot about the retreat aspects of sticking with that theme. I don't think I can beat it into my head enough how much people are not used to in real life interaction anymore and how much it exhausts them. I'm a pretty extroverted person and really enjoy these interactions. And even on my mini retreat, I found myself getting fatigued super fast and needing to recharge more than ever. So what that's taught me is like in the past, we would uh, lean on room sharing, you know, pairing two people up to share a room. Yeah, it saves on expenses, but it also gives two people a chance to connect, which has a lot of value. In these days, like it's much more important for people to have their space 
space to go and recharge and separate from the group. It's really important to build in that intentional, deliberate, social-less time where you can just, there's nothing planned for two hours. Just go to your room and hang out, go have a coffee, read a book, listen to a podcast, whatever you do to normally recharge. There's nothing planned right now and you're not missing out. And that connects very closely to that FOMO is real, that people have, especially in these companies, you know, you're, you get five days with your team every six months. You don't really want to say no to anything, but that leads to fatigue very quickly. Even though you're coming together for those four days, you can't jam pack it. Like you've got to give people the chance to recharge and be together and be alone. Yeah, that's it. It comes back to like, don't over, just don't over engineer it. And I went into this knowing that. And thinking that I knew that times are different. I was doing this before COVID and doing it after COVID is a different story. People are a little bit more okay with their introverted sides of themselves and needing that time. And maybe we'll get back to it. Maybe we'll get used to it again. But many people have not been in a setting with 100 people in three years. And that's like a muscle that's atrophied where it's like, hey, we got to work this thing out again, man. We got to figure out how to use the legs again. I found that really, really interesting for me personally. And like, it's very clear in terms of feedback and people's thoughts on these events so far and talking to other people who manage these for other teams. It's a common theme. Last question. What's the most important job skill for the next five years? This is very basic. Writing. Written communication and being really good at it. That's an art that I think a lot of us are still trying to figure out how to master. But as the world goes more distributed and focused on written communication, you could be the greatest orator, the person with the most energy and the greatest ideas. But if you can't express that thoroughly and succinctly in this environment, then it doesn't count for a lot. That written communication piece is going to become, continue to, to become more and more important. That's interesting. So this trend is kind of bringing that back. Like you said, it's basic and maybe we haven't really thought about it. It's bringing that skill back to the forefront because of the nature of remote first asynchronous. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think this is how like real work will get done. When real work used to get done in a conference room with 10 people sitting around in a circle talking things through as those conversations move more and more to the online world, unless we want to sit on eight hours of Zoom a day, those things have to become well done in the written form. There's a learning curve there for sure. Chase, thanks for joining us. I think this has been really insightful and informative, and it's going to help a lot of people, whether it's planning an offsite or thinking through what the remote policy is going to be. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to our interview with Chase. If you'd like to review the show notes of this or any other More Beach Meetings episode, head over to surfoffice.com slash podcast. If you like this podcast, we ask you to consider subscribing, sending to a friend, or writing a review. Until next time, See you on the beach.